The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 198. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Welcome to 2019. I'm excited to get the show going. Of course, as you can see, we're on video again, so I'm going to try to do this again for this entire year. Hopefully, we'll be able to pull that off. But I'm very excited to start off 2019 on video, back on The Brian McClanahan Show. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. Also, for my podcast listeners, if you want to get a discount on McClanahan Academy, this is for the entire year, 2019, you can use the promo code PODCAST, and you can get 10% off on McClanahan Academy courses. Of course, you want to subscribe to McClanahan Academy because uh, enroll in it. It's, it's free to do so uh, because people who enroll in the Academy get the best deals when new courses come out. And I'm planning on having one come out in the spring of 2019 on reconstruction and recreation. So it's the second part of my war class. And so you're going to want to get that Exciting stuff going on. Also, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep these lights on. Help keep the podcast going. Anything that you wish to contribute is much appreciated. And you can always get your McClanahan Academy gear by going to redbubble.com and looking for my name and getting your t-shirts, wall plates, clocks, stationery, all kinds of cool things, stickers, Great stuff at McClanahanAcademy.com. I'm sorry, at RedBubble.com. It's also great stuff at McClanahanAcademy.com. And, of course, you can always go to LearnTrueTruehistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom. And you can subscribe to Liberty Classroom through that affiliate link, and you also help the Brian McClanahan Show that way. But that's a great website. The best bang for your buck on the web. Got a lot of great classes, a lot of great instructors, including yours truly. And so you want to get that, too. All right. So again, excited to be back. Uh, I've got a lot of great stuff planned. This first particular podcast episode is going to focus on uh, the incoming Congress and a couple of, I think, interesting points that have been made about this incoming Congress, Um, one of which is generational. And so I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to compare this Congress to another generational Congress. So I'm going to talk a little about generations because I think that's important to an extent they're not as important as people think. Uh, if you if you crunch the data and really start looking at and you and you dig down into what's really going on in the United States Congress, it all goes back to think locally, act locally. There's there's no difference in what's happening in the current Congress than what's happened in the previous Congresses. So we're in the 116th Congress. Um, I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's 116 Congresses that we've had since the first Congress, way, 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 way back. And people ask me sometimes, when did the United States government, when did the Constitution, you know, when was it shredded? When was it ruined? It was the first Congress. The first Congress when they passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, certainly uh, led to a situation where we have this monstrosity of a federal court system. And there was certainly, uh, even in that time period after that, there was some debate as to the powers of the state courts vis-a-vis the federal courts and how that worked. But that Judiciary Act and the ability for people to appeal directly to federal courts certainly set up a dangerous precedent for the future. So the Congress has always been the problem. In fact, I could write a book 
how the Congress screwed up America. Uh, the Hamilton book was supposed to be how the Supreme Court screwed up America. They just didn't like it that I wasn't an attorney to write that book. It's kind of silly, but anyway. Um, so, half that book is dedicated to the Supreme Court. But, let's talk about this Congress. And, of course, all the laser beam focus at this point has been on AOC. Uh, the only AOC I know is the Articles of Confederation. But now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been called AOC. It's just kind of silly. Now, she's 26 years old. Twenty. Well, I'm sorry. 26? No, I'm sorry. I'm so, she's older than that. She's 29 years old, I guess. 29 years old. Excuse me. 29 years old. Youngest woman ever elected Congress. So 29. Never really had a, a, a job of any substantial um, importance. Now, I mean, of course, a bartender is important. But uh, she was she's not an attorney. Didn't work for any major company. Didn't really do anything. Didn't own a business. She worked as a bartender. And that's not to slight people that work these kind of jobs. Uh, but she doesn't have a whole lot of real-world experience uh, when it comes to uh, running things. So, I know we, we may not want the Congress to run anything. I mean, this is this is a question. Should, does a farmer have a lot of experience running things? So I would say yes. I mean, a farmer has more experience running things than somebody who worked in a bar. Um, clearly, uh, she doesn't manage her money well. I mean, she, she's made that evident. Uh, but she is a millennial. A lot of people have focused on that particular aspect of, of Ocasio-Cortez, that she's a millennial. And in fact, there are 26 millennials in the current Congress. Um, a Pew Research piece, which I, I read uh, just before I started recording this, um, mentions that the millennial, the percentage of millennials from the 15th, 115th Congress to the 116th Congress went up from 1% to 6%. Uh, the percentage of Generation Xers went up from 27% to 31%, a little bit over. The Boomers fell 62% to 53%, and the Silent Generation, 9% to 8%. So the Silent Generation, 1928 to 1945, the Boomers, 46 to 64, the Gen X, 65 to 80, and the Millennials, 81 to 96. So... <clears throat> We've seen some generational shifts now in Congress. And when you look at it, and just splitting, I, I did some, some tallying. When you look at this in terms of party affiliation, of, for the millennials, of those 26 millennials, 16 are Democrats, 10 are Republicans. So there's a six-seat advantage for the millennials in terms of party affiliation. For the Gen Xers, I didn't tally up the total number, but there's a three-seat advantage for Gen Xers for Democrats over Republicans. And so the real gap is not millennials or Gen Xers. As you can see, the Democrats hold a nine-seat advantage when it comes to millennials and Gen Xers. But the real gap is in the boomers and the silent generation. The boomers are still the problem. If you just want to look at a at a generational problem. The baby boomers are still the problem in Congress when it comes to bad government. All these other people are going to have bad government too, but when you look at where the movers and shakers are, they're still the boomers. And you can see the pushback from the boomers when you get to uh, Ocasio-Cortez because she goes on 60 Minutes and she starts uh, bashing all these Democrats, establishment Democrats, 
And the establishment Democrats have gotten a little upset about this, even in the mainstream media. Whoopi Goldberg saying she needs to learn to, to shut her mouth and just you know, listen to people and, and learn on the job. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the issue. And, and this is all media contrived. Ocasio-Cortez is young. She's energetic. She's, she runs her mouth. And, of course, they love that because she says a ton of stupid things, which draws clicks and views. Uh, the fact that she says that, you know, the, the rich people have to pay their fair share when they're already paying 88% of all federal taxes. I mean, yeah, they got to pay their fair share. I guess they need to pay 100% of federal taxes. I mean, it's just, it's kind of stupid. Uh, not kind of, it is stupid. The things she says are ridiculously stupid. So that's fun. And of course, you can't blame her. Um, she's a product of the education system. When you go to your library or just go to your book, go to Barnes & Noble and go to the children's section. Now, I do a lot of time in there because I have three kids. Go to the children's section and look at the nonfiction part of the children's section. All of the books are dedicated, for the most part, um, to leftist heroes. And this is what you get when you go into your modern education system. It's the left. It's uh, these leftist heroes that become important. Um, America is... Um, the, the melting pot, not the melting pot, the, the tossed salad idea, the melting pot idea is challenge. You've got all... Now, that's okay in some ways if we had a real federal system. We don't. In fact, what we really have going on in this Congress is what we've always had going on in this Congress, which is a regional difference. If you look at when you start tallying these things up and you start... Forget about generations. It's still regional. Most of the Republicans who are Gen Xers are coming from the South and portions of the West, the rural portions of the West. Most of the Democrats, and even the Millennials, most of the Democrats who are Millennials or Gen Xers are coming from the Northeast, the North, and the more urban portions of the West. So what you have is not really generational. It's regional. It's cultural. That's the split in the Congress. This is why I think locally, act locally. Why would Ocasio-Cortez, why would we even care about what she thinks about anything? Her problems stem from what she thinks are problems in New York City. If you want to fix those problems in New York City, then run for mayor. Run for city council. Run for legislature of New York. I could care very little about the crumbling subway infrastructure of New York because I can almost guarantee you I'm never going to ride it. I'm never going to ride in the subway in New York City. I don't, I don't want to. I don't care to. Same thing with crumbling infrastructure in California. I mean, they're really messing up California. That's fine as long as California stays California and doesn't try to govern the rest of the United States. This is where the Federal Republic actually comes into play. And all of this laser beam focus on the central authority is misplaced. Because the real rubber hits the road at the state and local government. And if Ocasio-Cortez and all these other millennials who have run for Congress to try to do something, if they really wanted to do something, they should go and work at the state and local level. So that's, that's one of the major problems we have here, is this idea that somehow, first of all, I don't think generations matter as much. And we get into this in history, and I'm going to start talking about that in a second, how generations matter. It's, it's not really that. It's not a generation it's culture, it's regionalism, it's localism. That's really what matters when it comes uh, to Congress and American politics. 
And Ocasio-Cortez is from a different culture than you would find in the South. Same thing with a lot of these other people who we're now looking at. You've got the foul mouth uh, member from Michigan. You've got, I mean, that's the funny thing about that is I did a podcast on an on, uh, episode on Trump's vulgarity, and I talked about this is good. I mean, we need this kind of stuff. And uh, you've got this congresswoman that goes up there and, um, uh, you know, calls Trump a very vulgar name. Uh, and while Trump is saying things, I mean, the De- oh, the Democrats, oh, this is, he's, he's, he's lowering public discourse. And now you have this woman go up there. Oh, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not into censoring people yet. When Trump says that we got to censor Trump, he, he's just, I mean, this is how stupid American politics really are. So let's talk about other Congresses and our generation is really important or is it, does it come down to culture? I mean, is it is it culture or is it generation? Is it age? And I mean, looking at this, you know, you can see that there certainly is a little bit skewed to the left of the younger people. And uh, as they get a little older, it more evens out. But of course, the boomers are the real gap. When you look at the 116th Congress in terms of people that are on the left and the right, it's the boomers. So the older people, these old hippies, who couldn't figure out anything else, failure to launch and all this. I mean, these people are, um, they're the real problem. But let's go back to the 12th and 13th Congress. And I bring up the 12th and 13th Congress to kind of compare uh, these generations and what's going on and how we look at Congresses and generations and regions and other things. So let's go back to the 12th and 13th Congress because that 12th and 13th Congress is the Congress that brought us Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. And a host of other people that nobody knows anything about. Uh, that's, that's always the fun part. You know, you can't write a book on... Uh, any, of course, John Randolph of Roanoke is there, but he's not, he's not part of Calhoun's generation, or Webster, or Clay. So you've got a few members of that Congress that somebody knows something about. For the most part, most of these people are just forgotten. And if you really are looking for a topic, if you're in graduate school and you listen to this podcast in history, focus on some of these other people. There's a lot of information out there. I mean, even if you just go to Congressional BioGuide, which is a great website, and they give you research collections for a lot of these forgotten members of Congress, go out there and write a, a dissertation or very minimum master's thesis on one of these individuals and add to the public knowledge. Stop talking about the same people all the time. Now I know it's you're not going to get you're not going to get a major book deal uh, when you write about some of these lesser known members of Congress, but you could if your dissertation is good enough could get it published uh, through a university press or at least produce a series of journal articles. Now I'm going to talk about that in a in a future podcast in the next three. I'm going to get into this professionalism of of history, but. Um, and the contrast with amateur historians, popular historians. Um, but you could at least do something to help advance your career by focusing on some of these lesser-known individuals, not just in the 12th and 13th Congress, but also when you move forward into the 20th century, uh, when you go into the Gilded Age, the Progressive Era. There's a lot of people out there to focus on that uh, don't have a lot of attention, and that's unfortunate because they need it. Now, there's also the the reinterpretation of some of these people I think is important. But if you're a political junkie, a political historian, which is what I was and I am, 
in graduate school. I mean, this, there's all kinds of opportunities to advance the knowledge of particular individuals and historical or, or overall historical knowledge of America by focusing on some of these lesser-known poles because they are and they were important. It wasn't just Clay, Calhoun, and Webster. There are other people in those congresses, other movers and shakers, or you know, it wasn't just Randolph, right? So you got some people out there to focus on. I mean, one of the great families, the Tuckers, a book needs to be written just on the Tuckers, the Tucker family, in terms of a political biography of the Tuckers. So go back to the 12th and 13th Congress, and you look at, this is a shift in generations. We call it the Warhawk generation, right? You've got Calhoun and Clay from the South and the West coming into the Congress. And Clay's an interesting individual. You, you compare Clay with, say, and Ocasio-Cortez is very willing to compare herself to Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt because she's a, quote, radical. And somehow Lincoln was a radical. Um, I would agree to an extent, though Lincoln would never be confused with the radical Republicans. I, I do think Lincoln was, and of course, this, is, this gets back to, to millennial education, and the boomers are creating this problem. I mean, the millennials were taught by the boomers, so were the Gen Xers. We've all, now, the Gen Xers did, were taught by the silent generation as well, but a lot of us were taught by the boomers. And in some cases, these millennials were taught by Gen Xers. Um, so there is that particular issue. But uh, the education system seems to think that you know, they, they have a complete misconception about Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and what that was and what it was intended to do. No one would confuse, say, Lord Dunmore's Emancipation Proclamation in Virginia as being some radical departure. Uh, because he was simply using it as a war measure during the American War for Independence. The same thing can be said of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, but yet somehow we confuse it for something it's not. It wasn't a radical move. It was an unconstitutional and destructive move uh, in terms of the, the Constitution itself and what the president can actually do with war powers. And even Benjamin Robbins Curtis pointed this out, who was an abolitionist. He said, this thing is dangerous. But that said... It wasn't a radical move. Socially, it didn't free any slaves. But, of course, this is what Ocasio-Cortez, oh, I'm a radical because, you know, Lincoln, what, we wouldn't have had an Emancipation Proclamation, and we wouldn't have had Social Security without that radical Franklin Roosevelt up there. Roosevelt was a radical in his abuse of executive power. Um, you know, was Social Security somehow radical? Uh, it was something that was being used and introduced all over Europe. Uh, so it wasn't like this is some type of radical idea. Um, bad idea, but radical idea. I mean, I, I could quibble with this term radical. But this is what she thinks because this is what she's taught in our modern American uh, education system. But again, Ocasio-Cortez was a bartender. A lot of the people who have now assumed office in the general government, in the Congress, um, they're still mostly lawyers, but their only claim to fame is being elected to Congress. I mean, that's it. They wouldn't have done anything else had they not been elected to Congress. And I remember, you know, back when Ocasio-Cortez took office, she took a picture of her, of her plate, her nameplate there, and it was this big deal. Look at me. I'm in Congress. I would, I would bet that John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay and Daniel Webster didn't do that. I mean, this was, even go back to the founding generation. These people didn't look at Congress as their mark of life. This, was, this wasn't that everything they, 
strive to be. They were, they were lawyers with successful practices. They were uh, judges. They were businessmen. They were planters. That was their life. The Congress was just something they had to do because they were elected to do it. And they didn't campaign like these people do now. I mean, I, Calhoun didn't walk around and wear out his shoes trying to get people to vote for him. The campaigning was much different. These people were chosen because of who they were, not because they went around and knocked on doors and bashed the other person. I mean, certainly campaigning was nasty. There's no doubt about it. I think it was nastier then than it is now. But to the only claim to fame for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the fact she was elected to Congress by minority of her district. And I say that because when you look at the number of votes she actually got and the number of people in her district, it was a very small percentage of her district that sent her to Congress. So a very small percentage of a congressional district is now determining how people talk about the Congress. This is how crazy it is in the direction of the United States. We're letting a borough of New York City dominate the public policy discourse of the United States. It's just absolutely insane when you really think about it. When you go back and look at Calhoun and Clay and Webster, look at Henry Clay. Henry Clay was elected or at least appointed senator before he was old enough to do it. He was in his 20s. Wasn't even old enough to be senator yet, but appointed. And then, of course, elected to the House of Representatives, where he immediate, almost immediately became Speaker of the House. About the same age as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But Clay, at that point, had already had a fairly distinguished career as a lawyer in Kentucky. He already, uh, had already established himself as a, as a prominent political mind. And so he's elected to Congress for who he was. And, of course, Clay was a consummate politician. He knew how to he knew how to work politics. I mean, this guy was a genius parliamentarian in a lot of ways. But not just that. I mean, he was someone who was uh, influential because of who he was, not just because he's able to get on television and make a big ruckus and say a lot of stupid things. He really was a transformational figure. And he's from the West. Now, he's from Kentucky, which is the Southwest, but still from the West. So it's more about region and Clay's situation than generation because these westerners were looking at things they are they are jeffersonian national republicans it's regional they're still republicans but they're national republicans they want some things that the hamiltonian system would bring them and namely internal improvements but that's that's clay that's that's the situation with henry clay john c calhoun same thing coming from the south he was a very successful lawyer, also a planter. I mean, this man had already established himself in business in a professional practice before he's elected to the United States Congress. And he's from South Carolina. He's also a nationalist. He's a war hawk. And we can talk about Calhoun's transformation from nationalist to sectionalist. I don't think he ever changed. He always said he was a union man and, and for the nation. But the nation had to abide by the Constitution. Clay, not so much. And then you've got Daniel Webster, again, a prominent attorney in, uh, in Massachusetts who had been elected to the uh, Hartford, what would be elected to the Hartford Convention, but had been a, a, an important member of this opposition to the Madison administration in the War of 1812 when he's elected to the 13th Congress. Um, so he was somebody who was, who was doing something in Massachusetts before he was even elected to Congress. You can't say the same thing for a lot of these millennials and even Gen Xers uh, 
who are elected to Congress now. They haven't really done much. Um, and so that there's no comparison. There's no comparison. I think it shows how far in the gutter the Congress has actually gotten. Um, where, where public discourse has gone downhill. And you have platitudes now and slogans that don't really mean anything. It's all about image. I mean, look, if Ocasio-Cortez wasn't young and vibrant, would she even be on the television? She's the face of these millennials. There's other millennials there, but nobody ever talks about them uh, because they're not this young, vibrant female who uh, like to run their mouth. I mean, look, Ocasio-Cortez would be great for a political pundit. Not so much, and, and actually the, there was an opinion in the Hill under Captain Obvious that she's not going to be a good, a fairly effective legislator. She's not. She's not going to do a good job. She's going to go up there and chant slogans and get on television and say stupid things. And I think in some ways the, the other side should be, should be wanting this. They want as much AOC on the TV as they can get because she's really bad. She's not very bright. Um, she says a lot of stupid things, and it just gives you fodder to go out and say, all right, look how, look how dumb these Democrats actually are. Look how dumb these leftists really are. But again, she's from New York. It's regional. This is not, and you go back and look at that 12th and 13th Congress, Webster being the New England sectionalist, and then you have Clay and Calhoun who are nationalists. Now, Webster is often confused for nationalists, and I've done a whole, a whole episode on Daniel Webster uh, in this nationalism, this idea. But you know, there was certainly sectional, this regional factored into how these people thought about politics and how they thought about the Constitution and how they thought about the powers of government. I will you you can't convince me that the New Englanders and the in this period were actually nationalists. They're they're just sectionalists. That in nationalism was a disguise for their New England sectionalism. I could say though that Henry Clay was a real nationalist. I think I can make the case for John C. Calhoun that he was a real nationalist. At least he was a union man. But I don't think you can make you can confuse Daniel Webster with being anything but a sectionalist. And I don't think you can confuse any of these other millennials or Gen Xers or even boomers who are going in from urban areas for being anything but regionalists or sectionalists or city dwellers who want the general government run like a city government. We need public transportation. We need, we need whatever it is. Take your pick of all the things they want to have. And they don't really know, they don't really care about what the Congress was supposed to do, which was general business. This is all about the minutia. Let's get dollars for these particular things. You know, green, green job. What the heck is all this stuff? Uh, green socialism. It's just socialism. I mean, you can call it, and it's not obvious, it's not red socialism. Well, what is it? It's green socialism. So, when we look at these things, don't get don't get lost in this generational stuff. Focus on what's really happening here, which is a New England, northern, urban, western mind against a rural south, rural west, or just south in general. This is still what you have. And if you look at most of these Republicans are coming from the south and the west. Most of the Democrats are coming from New England. I mean, when when they did when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on, nobody talked about this. But when you look at the split there in that Senate Judiciary Committee, 
The people on the Democrat side were almost all from New England. The people on the Republican side almost all from the South. We still have the same regional split because of culture. Ocasio-Cortez, it's not generational, it's culture. It's what you're brought up in. It's what you're taught to believe the general government should do. And that comes from the region, I think, oftentimes where, where you're born into and the culture you're born into. It has nothing to do with your age. And so when you go back again and look at this millennial, the six millennials, the advantage for the Democrats, out of those ten millennials, they're all from the South. Same thing with the Gen Xers. You look at the Gen Xers, most of them are from the South. And I mean, if I were to tally this up, let's see, there's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. Uh, there's 76, 76 Gen Xers who are Democrats and 73 Gen Xers who are Republicans. So you've got a fairly sizable, this is this is senators and uh, House of Representatives. So uh, out of that, you've got a fairly sizable um, group of Gen Xers out of the 535 members of Congress. You're talking 150 members. Uh, millennials, of course, none of those people are in the Senate. Those are all in the House. And 26 people can make a fairly substantial block. Even the, even the 16 millennial Democrats, that's almost the majority for the Democrats right now. I mean, so they could really determine how the Democrat agenda goes. And this is something that we don't, you know, voting blocks and how there could, if there was a solid, say, for example, South voting block, they could really control how the Congress went, how the House went. We don't ever think about that, but that's, it's regional. It's regional. So don't get caught up in the hysteria and the hype about Ocasio-Cortez. She's not going to do a good job. She's great for sound bites. She's great for, for pointing out stupidity. But it's not necessarily, I mean, look, her, her positions aren't her fault in a lot of ways. I mean, she's, she's a byproduct of American education. But this does come down to culture. It does come down to region. And so let's focus more on that. The fact that you've got now... New England, as a friend of mine said, New England is running America. The nationalists are running America. It doesn't matter which party they're from. The nationalists are running America. We really need to be focusing still on think locally, act locally. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which party's in power. They're both national parties. They both want a national agenda. And that national agenda is at odds with the original Federal Republic. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez would do better to get an agenda by being in New York, where you've got Cuomo up there saying all kinds of stupid things as well as governor of New York, but that's fine as long as it, if it stays in New York, good. If it stays in California, great. This is the major issue that we have in America. We need it to stay where it is, contain it. It's almost like, you know, a containment policy. Contain it where it already exists by any means necessary. Um, so uh, let's, let's uh, you know, think about that. Let's have a, a domestic Cold War, right? Keep the, keep the commies in the states where it already exists by any means necessary. Uh, so keep them in New York and California. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this first episode back from the Brian McClanahan Show. I've got a lot of good stuff coming up. Don't forget, uh, you know, we've got this on video now. So if you got it on the, on the, uh, on your podcast channel, and please rate this podcast on, you know, Stitcher or iTunes or Overcast, wherever you listen to your, wherever you get your podcast, SoundCloud, wherever it is, please rate this podcast. The more, particularly on on iTunes or Apple Podcasts now, I guess it is. Apple Podcasts. So the more reviews, the better. It moves it up the charts. Same thing with Stitcher and some of these. So the, the more places you're doing that, the more people hear the Brian McClanahan Show. But if you're listening to it and you're not viewing it, it's on YouTube now. you got the video. If you want to watch me deliver the podcast, you can do that. I know some people like to do that. 
Uh, I even like to do that. Uh, so I, sometimes I'd rather you know watch the podcast and just listen to it on uh, for other people. So you've got that. I'm looking forward to a great 2019. Thank you for being a Brian McClanahan Show listener. I do appreciate all your support, and I do this for you. Um, so um, I hope you continue to listen, and I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>